Welcome back to the Co-Management Commons podcast and really happy that uh, many of you are tuning in and sending nice emails along. And this week we have a really good guest speaker who's a national leader and was recently invited to a private session that I was hosting and we decided to have our conversation in a podcast format as opposed to PowerPoint or other types of methods. And that's what you'll hear today with Valerie Courtois, who's the founding executive director of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative in Canada. And her voice is certainly crossing boundaries and borders now internationally and recently was named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Climate Change Leader. So we we're very grateful to have Val come on to this podcast and share all of her insights and observations that she's been able to make over the last decade in her field of work. And I think you'll find it very inspiring and hopeful for many of us who do want to make change within the public sector. Enjoy. I just wanted to introduce Valerie Courtois, Dr. Courtois. She has been really up to a lot of things in recent years, and we are honored Val, that you've joined us this afternoon. And one of the things uh, to know is Val is a registered forester who specializes in Indigenous issues. Her degree in forestry sciences is from the University of Moncton. And she also has an honorary doctorate from the University of Guelph. So over the past 10 years, Val has emerged as a real leader and driving force behind the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, uh, which is a registered nonprofit uh, in our country that's having a real impact in the area of land guardianship. And when we say land, you can also envision waters in that discussion, obviously. And bios are really good and are formal and are great. And Val has earned uh, all of the honors that are on here. But I guess to kick us off, I was hoping we could make it a bit more personable and pass it over to you, Val, to share more about who you are and where you're from. And, and we'll take it from there. Thanks so much, Jamie. And hello, everyone. It's an honor to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this chat. My name is Valérie, but Val is fine. I'm certainly happy to speak French for anybody who'd enjoy that. But in Innu, they would say bananit because there's no V, L's or R's in Innu. And I'm originally a, a member of the community of Mastuyats, which is the westernmost Innu community in what is now known as Quebec, near what we call Pequagamit or Lac Saint-Jean. But I've been living and working in Labrador for well over 20 years now. And I met Jamie actually early on in that tenure. Some of the kind of my background, of course, I am a, a registered professional forester and I've done some of that work. That was what brought me to Labrador was to be forest planner for the Inu Nation. Um, but I spent actually most of my time being the director of the environment office and thinking through how do you build a nation's capacity to fulfill its responsibilities to its lands and waters and I met Guardians because Indonesia was has the second oldest guardian program in the country. And it was related to, of course, the Fisheries Guardian Program initiative that was begun post the, the end of the commercial salmon fishery on the East Coast. And, and so I was really inspired by that work. And after I, I decided to kind of spread my wings from the Indonesia we started working as a team to think through, well, if guardians can not only increase capacity for engagement and management and to fulfill responsibilities, but also have um, impact ripples on personal fulfillment and and as you know, leadership development within a community, I thought, gosh, if that could happen here in Chihajit, Labrador, imagine what would happen if every First Nation in Canada had a guardian program. And how would that then ripple through in other projects? What would major project proposals look like after that? Could we actually achieve FPIC in many of those communities, free, prior, and informed consent? And so that was the kind of the genesis of motivation, in part for the creation of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, 
that's existed since 2013. It was essentially a loose network of leaders from across the country who came together under the International Boreal Conservation Campaign, which is probably the largest, most successful environmental campaign globally that you've never heard of. Um, and um, that's by design because the campaign was built to really kind of be in the background of supporting the leadership of Indigenous nations. And as of June in this past summer, the ILI has actually taken over the leadership of the International Boreal Conservation Campaign, including its staff and assets and relationships. To our knowledge, that's the first time in the world that in a, a well-established 20-plus-year-old environmental campaign has relinquished its its space to Indigenous leadership. Um, in terms of who the ILI is, if you go on our website, there's a, actually a, a really great YouTube video that will do a much better job. Um, but essentially, they, we're really about kind of supporting nationhood and the ability of nations to be who they are as place-based peoples. And as a consequence of that, that strengthening, we tend to see much better land management and much better engagement on the ground. So it's essentially like conservation being a result of nationhood as opposed to the other way around, which is how traditional kind of environmental campaigns are built. Uh, some of the folks, you again, you can go on our website and see our leadership circle and our staff, but some of the folks include people like former premiers and former members of parliament or grand chiefs of their nations, people who've really occupied those leadership positions and had to make those really hard decisions in the absence of information. And, you know, the, a great political mentor of mine has said that uh, in any great leaders kind of experience in leadership, there's probably about five decisions that are very clear and the rest of them are all gray. Um, and you're trying to do your best in this. Well, I'm, I'm determined to to push that number up a little bit for some of our community members, because I, I don't know about the rest of you, but you couldn't pay me enough to have that job where you're doing everything from negotiating with the largest mining companies in the world to having to fix members' windows and everything in between in that job. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism in our communities about our leadership, but I have nothing but admiration for those who choose to serve in that way. Uh, because of the pressures that come with that responsibility. So that's the ILI in a nutshell. Some of the things that we've been able to accomplish, we've been the main kind of funding push at the federal level of increasing the amount of funding to guardians. We've mostly done that through uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada. And so in 2017, there was a budget announcement for $25 million to initiate a pilot that was going to be managed by a secretariat at Environment and Climate Change Canada. That was one sixteenth of our original proposal. And so we met with then Minister McKenna and I said, because we started to know each other after all these lobbyings. And I said, Catherine, you know, this, I know you're excited. This was the largest budget item for her as a minister in that budget. And she said, yeah, you know, I, I, I said, I know you're excited about this, but it's not what we were looking for. I need two commitments from you. One is that this is going to be a pilot and that you're going to work with us to increase the pot because you know as well as I do the success that, that these programs offer. The second thing that she agreed to commit to was that this was going to be a way for Environment and Climate Change Canada to get out of the business of program delivery and into the business of partnerships with First Nations and to make sure that we can really maximize the return on investment of that uh, of those dollars. And, uh, and then in 2021, we got an increase in the budget. There was $173 million announced in that budget of the, you know, the total envelope for Indigenous-led conservation and stewardship that year was 340. And 73 million went to parks for their pro programming. And then the other 100 million was split in a distinction-based approach. And that is the fund that, that has allowed for the creation of the First Nations National Guardians Network, which again is the first in the globe. And the Guardians Network takes on the responsibility 
on behalf of Environment and Climate Change Canada to distribute those funds, but under a full Indigenous leadership scenario. There is a joint working group that was created a number of years ago that includes federal members. We, we thought it was really important that multiple departments were involved in the evolution of that program, including representatives from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And so they also sit on the joint working group. We also have been working heavily on the issue of Indigenous protected and conserved areas. We were we were one of the groups that helped shape the ICE process, so the Indigenous Circle of Experts, which wrote the report, We Rise Together, uh, which speaks about the thinking behind Indigenous protected and conserved areas. And we've been a major push in, in generating federal funds, but also private funds that get invested in those projects. So under the Nature Fund, which was a major catalyst in the development of Indigenous protected and conserved areas, there was a match fund requirement of 20%. So we help kind of channel the philanthropic energy for support of those projects. Uh, we're also uh, the main convener for the Project Finance for Permanence Initiative in the Northwest Territories. So some of you might have noticed the $800 million announcement by the Prime Minister at COP15 almost a year ago. It was on December 7th last year. And and that's really to catalyze the establishment of protected areas in a regional process. And in my humble opinion, will be the major contributor towards the target. Those four areas, including major contributions on the marine side between the Great Bear Sea Project, Omish Gegwag uh, in the James Bay and Hudson Bay region and QIA in the Kikitarni Nuit Association region of Nunavut. So we're busy and we're growing and it's been an interesting time, Jamie. I think I think Indigenous-led conservation and stewardship in Canada is increasingly being looked at as a model globally for Indigenous leadership on these issues. And so that's been fun, but yeah. So what I'm curious to know is like right back to the early beginnings that you referenced with the nation was there a particular pivotal moment where you were doing that work and were introduced to the guardians where you knew there was something big there because it's not not everyone can see those things sometimes that need to have life breath into them and you obviously did so was there something pivotal and as a follow-up to that after i'm kind of curious to hear also if you ever imagined it would go on to blossom into what it has today yeah there was well there wasn't one moment i would say it was is a comb combination of small moments just witnessing how young people in particular, and, and you'll have to remember, Jamie, when I first joined the Innu Nation, there had just been an education report that had been released about how traditional education models weren't reaching Innu students. And the number of graduates between 1992 and 2002, I, I started in 2000, late 2002 or early 2003, there had only been 12 high school graduates in that decade previous to that date. For community a combined kind of population of about 4,000 and, and where more than half of the population was less than 20 years old. So when we were as a team kind of recruiting new guardians, we, you know, we had to kind of adjust our expectations in terms of the skill set that was coming to the job and the experience that those guardians had. And of course, there was a predisposition of young men wanting these positions, but what I saw was young men who were a little bit lost. And when they would come and become guardians, there was an immediate impact of straightening up, of, you know, being in a job, seeing responsibilities. Also being a guardian exposes you to all of the parts of the community. They were interacting with elders and women's groups and youth groups and all of these things. And they, and I started seeing that they, they not only were they uh, doing a great job, but they were kind of increasing their trust factor within the community through this work. I saw young people speaking their language much better over time. I saw, I mean, I heard grandparents say, you know, my grandson five months ago, I couldn't speak to him because he didn't speak the Inuit moon that I understand. And now that he's guardian, I can speak to him. And, and you know, he's 21 and it's the first time I'm having a conversation with my own grandson. Or, 
you know, those kind of things. So I thought, wow, like, and Chehajit and Natwashish have quite a history in terms of colonial impact. You know, this, we were just out of the the period in the 90s when it, when Davis Inlet was famous for all the wrong reasons. Um, and, and so, yeah, that definitely was a, a pivotal moment. I also saw that you know, as a manager, it was my job to make decisions on things like applications to mining permits or, and I, that was an impossible position if I didn't have the information I needed to advise how our leadership should behave or, or sign what letter they should sign. And the more I had guardians and the more information I had, the more I saw that there was a space for dialogue, which I thought was really important because, you know, Shehajit and Natwashish clearly have a development need that standard of living was way lower than other communities in Labrador. But there was a, you know, a discrepancy. And the more that we had guardians, the more I saw interaction, the more I saw possibilities for partnerships and opportunities around development too. So those were some of the things that I really appreciated. And, and by the way, doing training with guardians was a way for me personally to be exposed to Inu lifestyle. You know, when we talked about I don't know, caribou management. We didn't do that in a classroom with a chalkboard. We we did that, or a smart board for now. We did that by going and hunting caribou and bringing it back and taking it apart and talking to elders about all of this. And it was because of the guardians that all of this was possible. And so not only did I see what it did for others, but also what it did for me as a young Inu woman. Yeah, and when we, we chatted there last week, you referenced a theory of change. Is that connected to some of those early observations or i'd like to invite you now to elaborate on that because we didn't get really into it but i know it's something that you care about and guides you in the work that you're doing now it sounds like yeah no i'm i would say i've developed my theory of change over time particularly in in how you build large national movements of change i've been a, a good student of of the U.S. civil rights movements and general kind of civil rights actions. And I've often thought about how we can move towards progression. And then, of course, recently we've had this reality globally of this weird kind of populist movement and dichotomy in politics and and the difficulty of creating change and, and a lot of kind of opposing forces that are out there. Look, I was you know, I was born in the late 70s. I'm a child of the 90s when it felt like everything was hopeful. And I think a lot about how we might get back to that time, you know, where I when I was in school, like the, the mantra of the day was you better leave the world a better place than when you arrived. I haven't heard that mantra in a number of years, but I still believe it wholeheartedly. And so, yeah, I've been over time developing this theory of change. And I, I actually haven't had a chance to to really do it but if you'll indulge me but like let's say this is time right so this is progression this is regression and this is where we currently are as a society governments like to be right on this line wherever they can because that's the best politics that's where they think they can do it so i'm going to just put like like an anchor right there cuz governments don't really like to change that much they're all about status quo now we've got people on either side of this let's give them legs and arms here on either side of this spectrum and and some of them are much closer to the status quo than others so if you're i don't know greenpeace you're over here way at the end of the progression now if you're pulling on this line you've got a lot of leverage to do this. You're asking for major changes. If you're working within government, you might be really close to this line. You also have your string. Look, I've met so many government people who say, I'm in it because I want to change the system from within, and they're pulling, right? And But they don't have as much power to pull this line as the one outside. Now, if the one outside wins, what happens is the line doesn't move, it topples. And as it's toppling, it's going to crush the perspectives of many of the segments of population. So the ultimate goal for us is actually for this line to move vertically, not to topple over. So what happens is that every single person along this spectrum needs to continue to pull and hope 
hopefully in a coordinated way, because then that's what happens is the line will move over. Now, of course, you've got counter forces. Let's call them the extreme white wing who are denying and pulling against this. And guess what? They're very organized. And over time, they've been getting more and more organized uh, in terms of this. And what we've seen in some cases, like the U.S. and others, there has been a regression of this line, particularly on values around environmentalism and human rights and all of these things. So I'm doing my damnedest to organize this progressive side when it comes to nationhood and doing my best to work with every single level of change on this side of the spectrum, because we all have a role as long as we're consciously occupying it. Um, There's more to that theory of change generally, but that's been kind of my way of summarizing our strategies as a member of an organization that is really about a kind of building and promoting progression as a, and, and hopefully a, a better Canada. You are listening to the Co-Management Commons podcast. Thank you for learning about shared decision-making around valuable fish and wildlife species with Indigenous peoples in Canada. Let's all care about honoring the spirit and intent of Indigenous rights, treaties, and land claim agreements. Thank you for listening. No, that's really nice. And our artwork was excellent. And I think it's a really great segue to another question that I had of knowing that within the public service, there are a lot of people that do want to make a positive change. And it's easy to be critical from the outside looking in a lot of times. And just wondering, is there any advice that you would have for people working in government that want to start making those incremental impacts and change and how they can be pulling on that line, as you say, effectively and and in a coordinated way, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough. I feel for, you know, some departments are huge, like the, you know, ISK and CERNAC, God, they've got four buildings full of people who are responsible for delivery of programs. And I know, and, you know, we, I'm sure some of you have read the morale report about what it's like to work in that building not easy not easy as well to find allies necessarily in your team there is a it's a highly competitive space i've seen a lot of kind of hiding the ball by managers because they're threatened by people around them this kind of dynamic and that's terrible but the more there are of you the more we can dismantle those systems of power and the unhealthiness that exists within our public service and I have a lot of respect for that ethic of service that comes with being a member of the public service. And hopefully people embody that ethic as much as possible in their work. And so just be a good person and and bring your friends. As The other thing that I'm finding is that it's really been helpful to have good key political leadership. You know, we operated under the previous government, which offered very little space for Indigenous rights advancements. They did what they had to, you know, Stephen Harper did stand up and apologize for residential schools. They did. Conservative governments have resolved more land claims than any other government that has sat within parliament, but there was no real kind of bar set. There was no, we didn't even know what the mandate letters said at the time. And so the space for dialogue for groups like ours was limited under that When Prime Minister Trudeau was elected in 2015, and the very first thing he said publicly as a prime minister was that the most important relationship to him personally and to the future of the country was the relationship with Indigenous peoples, that eventually had ripple effects in some of the departments. Look, it's not necessarily rippling as much as I would hope for it to ripple, but it has really made a difference. And over time, the public service has really tuned to to responding to to that and we've had you know ministers who've kind of laid their careers on the line for some of those advancements sometimes that's worked out sometimes not so much but those are i take those as signs of opportunity for progression and so yeah it's not easy but uh, yeah i also think that as outside kind of non-for-profit corporations and 
ENGOs and all of those organizations outside, we need to spend more time with the public service. I've discovered so much through just meeting folks. It, it would be very easy for me not to interact at all with government and the work that we're doing, but I've seen huge value in in, in doing that. And the reality is that it, it needs to happen. The future of our country depends on it. I do think that as a, a Canada, the that image of a country of right, a country of equity, a country of hope, a country of leadership is absolutely possible. And the only way we can achieve that is by working together and hopefully working on the pieces that, that we align with. And in my experience through you know, polling and public engagement, et cetera. On average, anywhere, like I agree with most Canadians at least 70 to 80% of the time. And if we could focus on that 70 to 80% agreement space rather than the 20% disagreement space, we'd be a lot further ahead. Interesting. And just on the idea of different governments and stuff, I don't want us to dovetail into politics too much, but I'm just thinking strategically, and this is probably applicable for people that are in the public service as well, but are there strategies to be resilient when there could possibly be a change in government? Yeah, I, you know, I have real mixed feelings of that there. I can't, you know, I won't name anybody, but I can't, I can't tell you how many deputy ministers that I've talked to who are like, you know, I'm on my 12th minister in my career and I'll just stick to my line. I I don't personally think that's a healthy position. And, you know, deputy ministers and public services aren't elected. I mean, we elect our leaders for a reason, to represent our values. And, and so I do think that it is important for the voice of and the results of our elections to be reflected in our policy. I don't always like the results of our elections. I don't, but I do believe in the fundament of the system. Look, I'm not defending the current electoral process. We, I agree with the need for reform. I don't necessarily agree with blanket reform. But that being said, I mean, that's the system we have to accept and uphold. I do think, though, that in many, and in my experience, actually, that the rate of change towards progression, in my humble opinion, has not fully been realized to its full potential because there are people within the public service who are afraid of change and are very comfortable with the status quo. So it's it really is a mixed bag, Jamie, but I can't judge the system that I support if I don't agree with the results. Yeah. So why don't we look at it this way? Then maybe I could rephrase it this way. What are your aspirations now for the land guardianship in Canada? Like, how do you envision the future mm -hmm. of this initiative? Well, I mean, like I said, every single Indigenous community and nation in Canada that wants a Guardian program should be able to have it. Because in every case, we've just seen huge returns on those investments. And Guardians tend to be in communities, you know, the vast majority of Indigenous communities are in remote and northern places where job prospects are not clearly evident in a lot of cases. So, you know, in many cases, the guardians are the major employer of their community, and that has huge kind of social economic ripple effects. And But I would like for that to not be a, a five-year kind of under-cabinet renewal process. I would love to see this as ongoing funding. I would like to see this be included in the government-to-government -government transfers that happen with communities. But I'd also like to see the Guardians be a force of reconciliation between our, like within our nations. The Indian Act has resulted in many cases of a separation of our nationhood, and that's problematic for our political power in this country. So let's take my nation for the for as example, the Innu. There's nine communities in Quebec and two in Labrador, but all of us have the same fundamental relationship with our place as Innu. And guardians being a representative of that relationship should also reflect our nationhood. So it's not helpful to to constantly think about programs being delivered at the band council level. Their guardians actually have a, have an advantage of of being delivered more at at the nation level. I'm not saying they shouldn't be any guardians in communities, but 
but there should be kind of a value of nationhood. And ultimately, the reinforcement of our nationhood, I hope, would lead to something like, like a new model of governance in Canada. I would see Canada being more appropriately a federation of nations rather than being a federation of provinces and territories, personally. Now, I, I absolutely understand what I'm saying in terms of constitutional reform to make that happen. I don't think that'll happen in my lifetime, but that's my vision um, and hope for the future of of Canada. Thanks. And with with the guardians and, and knowing that the different advantages are they are the programs intersecting with research in particular and the research community. I'm just thinking from the perspective of people that are doing either natural sciences work either on land or marine areas and is the guardianship program a vehicle for researchers to intersect with in different ways maybe we could hear more about that and different success stories or advice on how to approach that would be good as well because it would be really practical yeah absolutely jamie in fact i don't know of a guardian program that doesn't do research in some form or another and you know good examples of that the cast the three nations in northern british columbia the cascatal tans and taku have just been deploying these climate change monitoring stations the province has tried to really manage that that program but what they found was there were huge gaps in their data for that northern region by the way those three nations cover 25 percent of british columbia so the guardians have now started putting in those stations it's going to take a number of years to figure out trends and the results of that tracking, but that's a great example, I I think, of partnership. And they've been working with, with the provincial scientists in that deployment, and they're feeding into the provincial database for the, tracking the impacts of climate change. I, I also think about the Decho KND uh, guardians. They're guardians for the Decho region in the Northwest Territories, and some of you might remember during the pandemic that the territory's borders closed for a significant period of time. And they had a partnership with universities in, in Ontario. And of course, none of the students could make it into the space. And they were, you know, many of them had their master's and PhD programs a little bit on hold because they couldn't do the data collection. And so they worked with the DHOKND um, guardians and were able to, f- to fully meet their sampling requirements and continue down the, the you know, their academic roads and and it was a huge benefit to the Dejo Candy Guardians because they learned how to do it. And so that's been really great. There's a case in Labrador in the late 90s that we talked about, Jamie, I, when I first got into, into managing the, the Guardians program, we were working with Environment and Climate Change Canada's office out of Amherst, but also their director was based out of Halifax, and he's since passed away. But they were doing this kind of general, you know, what is the water quality of major lakes? search at the in the end of the 90s they wanted these baseline datas for all large lakes and so they showed up in labrador and of course we're consulting with the inu nation saying we're going to do this what do you think and the inu were looking at their plans and all of the faces were all like totally confused because the plan that they had put out there was a was a, a random stratified sampling method and inu were like what the hell like why are you putting these holes in the middle like don't you know that each one of these lakes have an area of open water where all of the animals congregate and where we go? And could you not sample those things instead? And so Environment Canada actually changed its entire sampling process on Inulands to measure what we called ashqui. Ashqui is the word for areas of open water no matter the season. And boy, did they get engagement from the community because of course everybody was really curious, like, is the water good there? Is our fish okay? Can we eat those birds? Like it was much more engaged and relevant to to the community. And there were two full-time assigned guardians that tracked and followed the ECCC team as they were doing this work. There are hundreds of examples just like that, Jamie, that I could talk about. Yeah, that that was a really excellent one about and so obvious when you look back at it how it would have connected with what people cared about and wanted to learn about and the engagement. But uh, before uh, our time ends, I, I do want to congratulate you as well on 
being recognized uh, recently for the Stanford Bright Award for Environmental Sustainability. That was a very uh, prestigious award. And I was really happy for you personally when I seen you were the recipient this year. So uh, congratulations. And just reflecting on the award, what, what does that mean for you? What did that feel like to receive it? Look, I love the work I do, but I I really hate a personal attention. And so when awards come up, I always have this deep confliction that I have to wrestle with because the reality is that these awards are a result of an entire team's work. What the ILI does is really because we have the most amazing professional team working with us and none of it would be possible with me alone. And so I, I always find it hard to wrestle with those personal recognitions, but I also think it's important, you know, it's important to have our voice out there and to be recognized and the attention that it can garner. I hope that the, you know, on the balance of things that, that the notoriety would mean, better opportunity to advance our issues rather than kind of balance on, you know, ego boosting. So yeah, it was, that's something that I constantly wrestle with, but it was important for me to do that. Stanford is a, you know, globally significant institution. The room was full of, you know, very wealthy philanthropists who are now um, who we're now talking to for increasing kind of the private funding going to Indigenous-led conservation. And so in my mind, if I can bring more money than it costs for the whole thing, I'm not bad on the balance. And hopefully we'll have more Indigenous peoples from what is now known as Canada start to receive those recognitions. It's important to show that the contributions by Indigenous peoples are indeed making Canada a, a global leader on a number of fronts. And that's great that it's being recognized at a global level. You'll also see tomorrow Time Magazine is releasing its top 100 climate leaders globally, and I'll be on that list. And again, those are moments where recognition matters. And a lot of the work that I do is political work, and it doesn't hurt if people have seen my picture before. Excellent. Well, congratulations in advance of the announcement with Time Magazine. And with that, uh, you'll have joined many very esteemed people in Time Magazine. So congratulations. I got to say, as a 12-year-old, I never would have thought that would happen, just (laughs) for the record. Um, Yeah. If we have time, I'm sure uh, your parents will be uh, really proud. If we get a chance now after, I want to open it up to questions, but... uh, Maybe later on we can talk a little bit about your parents, too, and the different roles they've played over their lives and whatnot. It's a really interesting conversation. But uh, I do have some questions that have started to accumulate here. So I'd invite Bernard to ask your question verbally. I see you have one about language and place names. Do you want to elaborate a bit more? Great. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Valerie, for coming and speaking with us and sharing your time. I appreciate it. So I noticed during your acceptance speech for the Stanford Bright Award and at the beginning of your um, speaking with us today, you referred to what we now call Canada. And that reminded me of language that I've used before myself. I think that the way that we describe names of places um, has a powerful effect either to legitimize things or... Uh, question, cause people to question their own assumptions about jurisdiction and, you know, ownership of things. And so I really appreciate that. And I was curious if you have other examples of ways of using language to accomplish um, specific priorities, and maybe if you could also share the general principles that you use when thinking about how you're referring to different places or peoples uh, and that type of thing. Yeah, thanks, Bernard. And I do that very deliberately, particularly in rooms like that. I've also used that language with the prime minister in my previous meetings with him. I I think it's important to make the point. Canada's title is very much in question, and it's no accident that the comprehensive land claims process exists. It's an attempt to resolve that reality. And many 
major regions in Canada have not resolved that. My own nation has been in negotiation longer than I've been alive. I'm 45. So it's, it. you know, I can't in my right ethical self refer to Desinan as Quebec or Labrador. Of course, it's important to also reference those words because that's just common knowledge and I don't want to lose anybody in the way that I'm speaking, but it is important to make that point. And that until we're at a place where we are recognized as the nations that we are, then I'll continue to do that. I also, you know, I have a real hard time referring to myself as Canadian, even though I do kind of carry a Canadian passport. And believe me, when I'm at an international level, I'm, you know, there, there is a, there's a huge pride in being from the country now called Canada, but it is, it's it's really important to think through those things and to think the dynamic. And it really makes a difference in the conversation because, you know, when I'm meeting the prime minister, I'm meeting the prime minister of a nation that I don't really feel a part necessarily of fully. And thereby it, it changes the power dynamic in the conversation. And I want to talk to leaders of Canada as equals, because in many ways, what we're bringing to the table is a gift. And normally, you know, if you're bringing a gift, you want to do that with someone who is an equal. And guardianship and conservation, the number one strategy to Canada achieving its targets is Indigenous peoples. And it's a heck of a gift to do that. Also, we're not asking for very much to do that work just on principle. There are trillions of dollars that have been extracted from our lands over the life of Canada that has really been the basis for what we call the Canadian lifestyle and for Canada being one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And what we're asking for now or the gift that we're saying is just, look, we'll do we'll fix some of these problems. We'll contribute to reconciliation. We'll contribute to the future of the country. But we want your investment here. And investment is actually a an example of careful use of language, because when we go to the public service as Indigenous peoples and we say, we want you to invest in a program, what a lot of the public service hears is, oh my God, you're here for more money. And that's really problematic, uh, because then it kind of relegates to this paternalistic approach. And that's not helpful for my goals. And it's certainly not helpful for moving the line anywhere, because that is definitely um, status quo. The, another example of, of language use and care that I've, I, I think about a lot is the term land use planning. And as a forest planner, I think a lot of the premise and the values that you enter the practice of planning with, and when the thing that you're doing is called land use planning, guess where your brain goes? It goes to use. And that does not align with my values. So I actually prefer the term Land relationship planning, which, by the way, was put out there by a young woman named Simka Martin, who's a member of the New Chalnuth on Vancouver Island. And that is much more appropriate because the questions I ask when I'm doing a plan is not what can I use? The first question I want to ask is what needs to stay and then to go from there. So there are countless examples. And I hope that you also in in your spaces think about the use of language because it really can change the dynamic of the dialogue. Yeah. Hi, Valérie. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Yeah, I noticed, I think it links to kind of this choice of words, but I noticed you talked about this idea of like moving away from program delivery towards partnerships. And I work in a program where I think people have kind of started to like adopt the language of partnership without necessarily the actions that go underneath what partnership really looks like. And I think it's more of like a feeling. It's I, I don't always have the background to like articulate that. So I would love to just hear from your perspective, like what's that difference and how, yeah, how can I articulate that in conversation? Yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, I could give you the example of what we did with Environment and Climate Change Canada. So when they announced the $25 million, the very next thing they did was create a a secretariat to manage the program, which cost $3.5 million. And guess where that came from? It came from that $25 million. And so that was a bit of a surprise. And it's also like such an imperfect model. And they're being asked to both create an application process and then 
take on all of those applications and make a decision and advise the minister on what that decision should be. Well, if you're sitting in an office at Sacré-Cœur in Gatineau, how the heck are you going to know what's going on and what's great for Shehaji? Or for, or even for Mastuyats or for Wendaki or for any of the communities across the country. It's actually not fair to the public servants to be asked to do that. Yet there's so much pressure. Like, are you doing a good job? Are you measuring? Are you meeting the communities that you need to? Are you having the impacts that this program intends? How the heck are you supposed to know? And you kind of jumble and the likelihood of mistakes or whether they're intended or not is so high in that reality. Yet, you know, and none of those members of the secretariat had even been near a guardian program before they came to our gatherings, but they don't know the day to day of what that looks like. And how do you handle five guardians whose uncle just passed away and you can't do the meeting with Parks Canada because you like... Or that's the week the report has to be in, which and it's online and our internet services are terrible or, you know, all of those realities of interacting with the program. So we said enough with that. We've got a bunch of guardian programs with coordinators who have hundreds of years of experience managing programs combined. Couldn't they help make this decision? And wouldn't that be great for the secretariat to learn? from all of this. And so that's where we created the joint working group. It wasn't easy because of course, member, a lot of the members were like, wait, are you after my job? Like there was like this human reaction to that. Like we're not meant, we're not attacking anybody personally. What we're doing is we're dismantling the system that is inherently racist and unfair and does not serve us. And I can now, like, the, those same public servants are like, great, this is awesome. This is the most meaningful file that I have ever done in the history of my career. I'm proud of the work that I'm doing here. And I, those weren't the targets for this change. But wow, how telling is that? And so I, I really think that the public service could do much more with delegating some of its responsibilities, but in, in a way that 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 doesn't diminish the effectiveness of the work on the contrary it should increase it but it's i get it if you're you know if you're hired to be you know i don't know a pm5 in the, for this program and your job is to do this it's really tough because that's what you're asked to do but on the other side of the table it's not the best experience for us i also think that you know this kind of proposal reporting dynamic is insane when I was the manager of the Guardian program, 80% of my time was about filling out applications at $25,000 at a time for a $1.5 million budget total, and then reporting on those. And I can write a proposal and a report with the best of them. I guarantee that none of that was ever read. And how annoying is that? That 80% of my time, because of this reality of the program dynamic, was spent on something that went nowhere. And look, I'm generalizing. I know some of those things are read. I know there are elements that come out and some of it is used, but it certainly wasn't worthy of the time that I was investing in it. And I think we can do better by communities. And that's what I'm excited for the network to do, because the network is going to take on the job of accountability and tracking and monitoring of the effectiveness of those investments. And the guardians could just do what they're great at, which is being guardians. Yeah, no, that uh, kind of connects. I'm going to try to roll a couple of questions together here because there's some great ones coming up in the in the chat here as well. And just wondering how the Indigenous Leadership Initiative can serve as a resource for, in this case, government researchers or others, particularly in the context of new projects or coordinating projects amongst nations. And additionally, are all Guardian programs part of the ILI? And do you have some more examples of the roles and, and functions of the programs in the various uh, territories? Okay, ILI does not manage any Guardian program. Each one of them is owned and managed by their nation. What ILI does is we catalyze and create a national voice for the opportunities for investment we help we help support and bring together guardians we're the host of the guardians gatherings we help catalyze where we can create the political space 
and we helped create the network. And so we're really much more of an advocacy voice than we are a management outfit. And that's appropriate. We, you know, a guardian is a guardian when they're working for their nations to feed the decision making of their nation's leadership. Otherwise, there are other things. They are community-based monitors. And I've had this argument with Parks Canada, who would love for some of their Parks uniform-wearing um, staff to be named guardians. And I said, nice idea, not appropriate. And so it's, yeah, we, we don't do that. But And because we're all about nationhood, we have to kind of walk the talk. It, we're, we don't want to create another kind of level of bureaucracy and management and kind of playing in decision-making space that should belong to the nations. But we do curate the Land Needs Guardians. We have a significant comms outfit. In fact, the Indigenous Leadership Initiative and all our chan channels combined have the second largest social media presence in Canada after the David Suzuki Foundation, who's been around for a few years. So we'll give them that. And so, yeah, that's the kind of thing that ILI does is really about kind of uplifting and creating that political space. Some of the roles of the guardians, it really varies depending on the nature of the obligations and the relationship by those nations. So if you're a Hailsook guardian in Bella, you're likely tracking the evolution of the herring population. You're probably managing clam beds. And I can tell you that as an Innu person, I know nothing about herring or clam beds other than they taste great when you eat them. And so, yeah, we know a lot more about caribou. And 10,000 years of relationship, I can talk your ear off about the dynamics of caribou and how we need to think more about, more comprehensively about their management. So it really depends on where you are. Also, it depends on the life of the program. What normally happens is when a guardian's program is created, it tends to be anchored in a particular initiative and then grow from there. And that's what we're asking for support for the federal government. We're not asking the federal government to pay for the entirety of the program for the nations. What we're asking for the federal government is to pay for that anchor, whether that is a national park or a species at risk program or what. And then from there, the nations can then build out. So Inu Nation is a great example of that. So the Fisheries Guardians Program, anchor. The now Akamiapishk or Mealy Mountains National Park, anchor. But co-management on forestry negotiated with the province. Monitoring of Voices Bay Nickel Mine negotiated with what was then the Voices Bay Nickel Company, now Valet, etc. So it really does depend on the, kind of the breadth of the program. Can we be a resource for government government folks? Absolutely. Uh, uh, like we spent quite a bit of energy on our communications capacity. And there's a number of resources that, that we've either produced or helped produce or we help promote. And I really hope that all of those things are being used to it fully. Whether we have, we won't, however, have time for conversations like this. This is quite rare. I wish I could do more. But if I did more of this, I couldn't do more of that. And that's really tough. So what I tend to do instead is to kind of do touch points where possible. And I hope that in so doing that we create um, ambassadors. Uh, for our issue and we create allies. Um, in fact, Land Needs Guardians has a resource ha called How to Be an Ally, which is actually great on giving you tips for that. But that's much more realistic given how many we are and, and the scope of what we want to accomplish is. That, uh, now that you say that, it makes this uh, next question I had think of like we're like when you get into data, I don't want to say into the weeds, but data can be really in the weeds sometimes. And do guardian programs already able to balance the task of collecting data to help indigenous communities and help achieve nationhood while at the same time collaborating with outside partners to gather information for wider objectives and external groups? I don't know if you're involved in that kind of data sovereignty work? Yeah, we've done a little bit kind of on the principal sides um, of data sovereignty and more kind of on the nationhood side, but the actual management of the data, not so much. I personally love that stuff. Every once in a while, if I can dive into a data sheet and look at a, you know, multiple GIS layers, I, that makes me so happy. But it's pretty rare. We do work with nations to do that. There is some thinking at the network level if, if perhaps the network could not offer some sort of data management support and also data analysis. You all know 
the hardest part of data isn't collecting it, it's analyzing it and kind of drawing out, you know, trends and kind of making the data speak for you. And that's, that's a rarer capacity. So what we're also seeing is that there are nations in their own kind of nationhood building who are working together on that aspect. So the Coastal Stewardship Network on the coast of British Columbia has a data manager um, on staff, which helps the guardians kind of do that work. And I think that's great. Not only do they have a data manager, they also have their own data logger and their own system for how they track that data, which is exciting. I also think it's really important for us to think through making sure that action uh, of data management and analysis is as indigenized as possible. And so we have, there There has been some trends for people to say, well, why don't you use, I don't know, the Atlantic Canada data management system? And, you know, as a stop measure, that might be appropriate, but in the long run, you know, there's so much value in that analysis that it, it, it is important to think about how you indigenize that practice. And so the more that nations themselves will have that capacity, the better. And and then finally, the location of the data is something that we've been talking about quite a bit. There's a lot of concerns about data being stored outside of Canada and outside of our systems. And there's definitely a trend. That's really interesting. But I'll squeeze in one more question because I know you've been very generous with your time. And the one that we had here in the chat was asking if you could elaborate a little on the transition from delivery programs to partnerships with Environment Canada in this case? Well, first, we had some visionary managers within Environment and Climate Change Canada who were willing to play ball with what we were proposing. That hasn't always been the case. We've approached other departments that didn't quite have the same visionary leadership. But in the case of Environment and Climate Change Canada, it was absolutely there. And in many cases, they were public servants who were closer to the end of their career. So they kind of gone through the ringer and seen multiple changes and in, in the ways that programs had been delivered over time and therefore had a really good kind of basis for exploring what this can look like. And that runs the up the gamut from, you know, we had we were working pretty much at the director level and up in, in the design of this program. And so we, you know, it took a little bit of work to make them ha think through. There, There's also something to just doing it that was helpful in this situation. So because the secretariat was new and at the same time we said, don't reinforce this thing. We want to change how it looks like. We were involved in the early development of the proposal process. And we were able to show if it was like a secretariat design proposal versus the one, the version that was augmented by Indigenous input, the contrast of those two approaches. And we also, you know, surveyed the guardians and asked them, and we didn't tell them what was what, but we said, which one do you prefer? Where do you see yourselves better reflected and better able to answer? And they all systematically chose the one that had Indigenous input surprise. And so we did a lot of that kind of data tracking work on the impacts of those changes and how it was more efficient. So we were able to directly engage and respond to concerns as they arose over time in a direct and kind of meaningful way. This wasn't just, it's the right idea morally. It was, let me show you why this could work better. And then afterwards, we worked with Environment and Climate Change Canada to measure the impacts on their investments. And so we, as ILI, had done an ROI, a return on investment for a couple of programs in the north. But we also helped kind of facilitate the tracking of that return on investment for the government funded programs from 2017, 20, yeah, 2017 onwards. And, and that helped them because it, it, it also tooled those directors to then speak to their ADMs and DMs and say, hey, look, this is great. And by the way, it aligns with how we decide what this could look like. But like I said, it was it took a while and it took a while to build trust between the committees because, you know, what happened on the Indigenous side is there was very little trust for government programs and they were just seen as people who wanted to make life difficult. And then on the government side, it was just like, oh, these people are judging who we are and they don't know how much we're dedicated to the success of this. And so it, it we did, as ILI, have to do a lot of 
you know, actually see this person and can you see this person too? And can't you see that there is an area of, of common ground? And we did that in ceremony. Often it was about bringing people out to, you know, we, we took the secretariat to Gudagonzibi and held our meetings there and grounded it in ceremony early on. And that was important. And many of the public servants were like, wow, I feel so much better after this. I, I'm kind of happier and I'm ready to chat. And so don't underestimate the power of ceremony in creating changes in your departments. Valerie, it's been an honor to share this space with you. Thank you for sharing your stories. You know, it's obvious it's been kind of helpful for us to hear about the hard work that you've put in over your career in the with the Inuit communities and bringing this network of guardians together and hearing like, the creativity that you've brought to this, for example, with that theory of change that you showed us. And it's been inspiring to hear you talk. So it's clear that these, these awards that you're receiving are well-deserved. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time with me. It's been nice to, to spend time with you all. And all thank right, you, Jamie, care. for the invitation. Oh, no problem. Take care, and uh, we'll see you somewhere soon, in the airport probably. Likely at the, in the Maple Leaf Lounge. We'll see you there. <laughs> All right. Take care. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Co-Management Commons podcast. There's so much to reflect on, and it'll be exciting to see what the future brings. But I think it's very obvious that the capacity exists in our country for indigenous guardianship and co-management at many different levels. And I really felt it was empowering and encouraging to see that with the right approaches and the right points in time and strategies, that you can make good change in the public sector and work in partnership with the public service to really initiate amazing projects such as this.